Now, friends, we've come to this sixth chapter of Micah. The little prophecy of Micah, as we've seen, is a very important little book in the Word of God. The reason that we go through the entire Bible, teaching it actually book by book and chapter by chapter, we touch on every chapter, and in a great deal of it, it's verse by verse, And then in some places, it's word by word. We believe, therefore, that each book of the Bible is in there for a purpose, and a very definite purpose. We've seen that in this little book. And each section, we divided it actually into three main sections. That is, we saw who is a God like unto thee in proclaiming future judgment for past sins. That was in the first three chapters, and it began with a call here. Hear all ye people. That was chapter 1, verse 2. And then we found that the second major division began in chapter 4, and it's chapter 4 and 5, and it began the same way, a call actually, to hear. And we have that in that section. And then we come to this last section, and it is here a call again in chapter 6, Hear now what the Lord saith. But I have taken the privilege of dividing these last two chapters because each one of them is major and I've made a major division out of each one of them. So the chapter 6 that we have here, Who is a God like unto thee, pleading present repentance because of past redemption? And that's chapter 6. And then in chapter 7, we'll see who is a God like unto thee in pardoning all iniquity because of who God is and what he does. Now, this section here begins as the other major sections has begun in verse 1 in chapter 6 again. Hear now what the Lord saith. Now, this is a call not only to the northern kingdom, but I take it that again, it is really a call to the entire world to hear, because I think we'll see that in just a moment. But here we open with that. And he registers here his complaint against Israel. And this is the beginning of the third and final message of Micah to the nations of the world, and of course to Israel in particular. Now, God has a contention with his people Israel. And from it, we can learn great lessons, of course. Hear now what the Lord saith. Arise, contend before the mountains, and let the hills hear thy voice. Now, this is an expression that we've had before us several times as we've gone through the prophets. Actually, a calling to nature. This is not mother nature either. It's not an attempt to fool Mother Nature. This is a call, actually, it says, to the mountains and to the hills. 
But I believe that there is an application here, as we have seen it has been made before, that a mountain represents a great kingdom and a hill would represent a lesser kingdom. And I would say that it's not only a call to nature, but to the nations of the world. In other words, here is a message that is applicable to all the nations of the world. And you'll notice he says in verse 2, "...hear ye, O mountains..." Now, the nations of the world are to hear the Lord's controversy. In other words, it's a controversy with his people Israel. "...and ye strong foundations of the earth..." That is, these great peoples and nations of the world that have been in existence for literally thousands of years and yet have been far from God. God now gives a message to them. For the Lord hath a controversy with his people, and he will contend with Israel. Now, God has a controversy with his people, and he's calling them into court. And then he does a very startling and surprising thing here when he goes into court instead of lodging a charge immediately against them, he says, what am I guilty of? Can you imagine the condescension of Almighty God to little man down here on this earth? Now, he says here, O my people, what have I done unto thee? And in what have I wearied thee? Testify against me. In other words, this is verse 3, and in other words, God is saying to them, Why have you turned from me? Why have you rejected me? What have I done to you? What have I done? And it is something that we're going to meet with again in the prophecy of Malachi, because there, after the captivity... Malachi, the last book in the Old Testament, after the captivity, the people returned and they became very blasé. They became very sophisticated again. They had forgotten the Babylonian captivity. The city now has been rebuilt and they are enjoying prosperity again. And Malachi speaks to them and they said, well, to tell the truth, this going through the religious rituals is a little boring, and it's very boring indeed, and it's wearisome. And I'd more or less agree with them in that, but the problem was not with God. The problem was with them, and we're going to see here what the real problem was. Now, he asked them to testify against him. What has God done? Well, he's going to tell them what he's done. To them, What is it that God has done? Has he been ugly to them? Has he mistreated them? Did he take them down to the land of Egypt and leave them there and forget about them? He could do that. He didn't have to deliver them out of the land of Egypt, but he did deliver them out of the land of Egypt. Listen to him now in verse 4 of chapter 6. For I brought thee up out of the land of Egypt and redeem thee out of the house of servants. They were slaves. God says, I have redeemed you. 
I didn't do you wrong. I didn't harm you. I redeemed you. You were slaves bending under the yoke of the taskmasters down in the land of Egypt. And there's no one to deliver you. You were not an attractive people. You were a slave people. And you had dropped down to a very low level, to the lowest level of humanity. But God says, I loved you, and I came down, and I redeemed thee out of the house of servants, of slaves, and I sent before thee Moses, Aaron, and Miriam, and I gave you leadership to lead you out of the land. Moses, and Aaron, and Miriam. It's interesting that Miriam is mentioned here. I'd like to call attention today to the women livers that God didn't pass them by. Miriam was one of the leaders out of the land of Egypt. She was on a par with Aaron, but not on a par with Moses, because Moses was the one that God had chosen. And actually, Miriam wanted to lead a rebellion against her own brother. You remember when they got out in the wilderness, Moses really took charge. He was leading under God. Miriam says, who is he to tell me that? Why? I remember when he was a little old bitty fellow and he was about to be put to death by Pharaoh. And I took him down there with his mother and we put him in the bulrushes and I stayed at a distance and I watched over him. Who does he think he is? Tell me what to do. Oh, she was the first woman liver, I guess, that we've had. She says Moses thinks he's going to tell me, but she was a leader. She was one of those and she was chosen of God. And I have a notion that she had a real ministry with the women. Can you imagine the problems that would arise with the women and the children on that wilderness march? Problems that Moses would not know too much about. And Moses is another example of a father that wasn't too good a father. Tremendous leader for Israel, but not such a good father. David was the same kind of a man. Strange, isn't it, that you have those... And it's always well to have a wonderful mother at a time like that. And Moses certainly had a wonderful mother, and she was the mother of Miriam. And so Miriam must have been a great help, especially to the women in that wilderness march that they made. And so their complaint is, oh, we're weary, we're tired of worshiping God. After all, what's he done for us? Now, God goes back and he recites their history. Now, he says, and listen to him. God is pleading from his heart now with these people. He says in verse 5, O my people, remember now what Balak, king of Moab, devised, and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him from Chittim unto Gilgal, that ye may know the righteousness of the Lord. Now, may I say to you that we have here a very wonderful incident given to us here. And this incident goes back, actually, to the time they were ready to pass through the land. They'd had to go all the way around Edom because Edom wouldn't let them through And God had led them around, and then they came to Moab. And the king of Moab was this fellow 
Balak. So Balak wanted to curse the children of Israel, and he hired this prophet Balaam, who was a lover of money. He was a hired preacher, and yet he was a prophet that seemed to have information from God. God certainly spoke through him, but God finally judged him, and he was called in to curse the children of Israel. And you will recall that it says, he answered him from Chittim, and by the way, that was the last camping spot before they entered Moab after Balaam began his ministry against them, and unto Gilgal, and Gilgal was the first place they camped when they got into the promised land proper. And so that we are located here geographically. And I'm not going to go back over these prophecies that Balaam gave, but he couldn't curse Israel. God would not let him curse Israel. Now, he did something very damaging when he saw he could not curse Israel. The last word that he gave, and what happened was that Balak took him up to one mountain. They looked down at the camp of Israel, and Balaam started out by saying, How shall I curse whom God hath not cursed? God was not doing them evil. God was on their side. Now, if you go down in the camp, they weren't perfect because God was dealing with them down there. But no enemy on the outside is going to find fault with them. And you know, that's the wonderful thing today that the children of Israel didn't know it, that there was an enemy trying to curse them. And God was protecting them and defending them. And old Balaam had to say, How shall I curse whom God hath not cursed? I'm not able to do it. God would not permit it. Now, we are told that we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. And God deals with us personally. I know that he has with me. And severely, I'm confident that cancer that I had was a judgment of God upon me. I accept it. Is that from him? And I thank him for hearing my prayer. But I'm very thankful that I have up yonder an advocate, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he defends me. He's on my side. He's my advocate. He is the one that today says that I'm his child. I am in the family of God, and he's not going to let anyone on the outside curse. May I say to you, that ought to answer today the superstitious and wild views that are going around that God's children can be demon-possessed and they can be cursed by this. I don't believe one whit of it. Now, I think the devil can give you a whole lot of trouble, and I think that he can certainly make life miserable for you. But no demon's going to possess God's child. We've got an advocate. I don't care who you are. If you're a child of God, he's on your side, and he's defending you. As Martin Luther put it when it seemed the whole world had turned against him at one time, he says, one with God is a majority. I'm on the side of the majority. How about you? That's very important. And God is telling his people, I've defended you. 
Even when Balaam attempted to curse you and Balak got disgusted with him, he took him from one mountain to another to four mountains and he couldn't curse them. But he gave some awful advice. He says the thing to do now, since you can't curse them, you can't fight them, join them. In other words, it's the same old story. If you can't fight City Hall, join City Hall. So you go down and intermarry with them. And that's what happened. And that introduced idolatry among the people. And that was the occasion for the brazen serpent because of the rotten advice that a false prophet had given to the people. And I say to you today, and I want to say this very carefully, because we're getting today a whole lot of so-called marriage counseling. And there's a world of that going on today. And I want to say that a great deal that comes to me, and I only get it secondhand, but that is handed to me and my friend, it doesn't happen to be scriptural. Now, I know you can pull out a little verse here and a little verse there, and you can build up quite a case. But the only thing that's going to make a marriage work, friends, is love. If he can look down at her and say, I love you, and she can look back at him and say, I love you. Now, my friend, you've just about solved all the problems when you've done that. If you can come that far, this idea today that you can work out these in that type of a manner. Oh, my people, God says, remember now what Balak, king of Moab, devised and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him from Chittim unto Gilgal, that ye may know the righteousness of the Lord. God was righteous, God, but he was defending you. He was on your side. And it's wonderful to have God on our side today. How wonderful this is. Now we come down to, as we have indicated before, there is always a wonderful unusual passage in every chapter we've been in, and there will be in the last two. In fact, the two most wonderful ones are probably coming up. And we're just now coming in verse 6 through verse 8 to the one in chapter 6. And this is the one that the liberal delights in. The liberal says, this is what pure religion is, and that this is the greatest statement in the Old Testament. Well, in my book, that's an exaggerated statement. This is a great statement, but I rather agree with the liberal. It's a great statement, but I don't agree with the liberal in the interpretation of it. And we're going to see what God really means when he's speaking to his people in this most unusual passage. Now, these people have a question and fact of the matter is, we have really four questions here that they ask. And they are good questions. There's nothing wrong with the questions. It's the answer to them that is all important. And that is what we want to look at today. This is a very important passage of Scripture because... It has been used and abused by the liberal today, probably more than any other. And 
it's so easy to just reach in here and lift this little passage out of three verses. In fact, they lift out only verse 8. Now, this is a wonderful section, but let's be very careful with it and keep it in the context of what we're talking about here in this book, and especially as it relates to the Old Testament. Now, I'm confident that every person who believes in a God wants to ask the question of how am I going to approach him? How will I come to God? Unless you're an atheist, that has to be a question that would cross your mind. The pagan nations of the past and the heathen of the present hour, they have asked that question and they've answered it. All the pagan religions of the world have attempted to answer this question. How will I come to God? And the pagan viewpoint, the heathen viewpoint is, first of all, it's revealed in their idols. They're horrible looking. And they try to appease God. He's angry. They've got to do something to appease him. Now, today, that is the viewpoint of the pagan and heathen in this country. And it's, I think, the question, a legitimate question, that the average man would ask. Now, I'm reading verse 6. The first question is, with what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the high God? Now, these people, of course, had in mind, they say, what's wrong with God? Why is he displeased with us? We're going through the rituals and the liturgy and the rites of religion. In fact, we are going through the outward form, and he gave us the form to go through. But he also had given them something else, too. But they were just going through the formality of religion. And so they're asking the question, and it's a legitimate question. It's a question that any person that believes in God must ask, with what shall I come before the Lord? and bow myself before the high God. What can I bring to God? What can I give him? He's way up yonder. I'm way down here. How am I going to reach him? How am I going to communicate with him? How am I going to make contact with him? How will I please him? And how will I be saved? The Philippian jailer, as pagan as they come, his question is, what must I do to be saved? How can I be right with God? This is a good question. Nothing wrong with the question. Now, the second is, Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves of a year old? Now, this is their answer. God had required that. God had told them in the sacrifices that you have in the first part of the book of Leviticus. Five offerings they were to make. And this was their approach to God. And so they asked the question, will this be adequate just to go through the form of religion? And it always degenerates down to just one thing. I have to do something for God. I must do something for him. He wants me to do something. And may I say that this probably reveals the proud heart of man more than anything else. We want to do something for God. 
we feel very warm on the inside when you and I have been generous and made a gift. The lost man says, well, I go to church. In fact, I'm a church member. I give generously to the church. And when they ask me to do something, I do them. I'm a civilized man. I don't go around hitting people on the head. In fact, I'm considered a pretty good Joe. I'm a fellow that everybody likes. And now, what in the world does God want of me? Shall I do something else? I feel like I should do something. You see, we've got the thing all backwards today. What must I do to be saved? And they came to the Lord Jesus. What must we do that we might work the works of God? And the Lord Jesus said, this is the work of God, that you believe on him whom he hath sent. And he is saying, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. That's the only work God's asking you to do. Believe. Faith is just about the opposite of works. Now, saving faith produces works, as we've seen, but it certainly doesn't originate. It doesn't originate salvation. Works, your works have nothing to do with your salvation. But that's the normal question of man. That's the second one. Now he asks the third one. Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams or with ten thousands of rivers of oil. Now, that's really being generous. In other words, is it because I haven't done enough for God? Should I do more for God to try to please him? You hear that today. I had a man, he was a wealthy man in Nashville, Tennessee. It was near Christmas. He and I were members of a health club at the Y. We played volleyball together. And he told me, he says, I want you to know what my religion is. I believe in being generous. And every Christmas, I give my employees a bonus. And I give to this cause and that cause and the other cause. And I give to my church, too. Now, what else could God ask of me? In other words, I go the second mile. I'm a big spender as far as the Lord is concerned. Well, what else would he ask me to do? I'm doing all of this. And that's the question. Is it that we should be very generous in what we do? Is that our problem? A great many say, well, maybe I'm not doing enough. And I hear that. I've heard that. Somebody says, I just don't feel like I'm right with God. I don't seem to be doing enough, you know. Sincere people. They're not saved. They're church members, but they feel like if they just do a little bit more. And that is something that the liberal preacher can work on. It's a psychological approach. He can say, now, look here, you folk are not doing enough. And the fellow digs down a little deeper, especially if he's a man of means, and he says, well, I'll give a little bit more. My, God will be tickled to death with that. My, he's sure going to be pleased with me. And he'll pat me on the head. I'll be like little, was it Georgie Porgy? Or who was the little fellow that sat in the corner eating a plum pudding or pie or something? And he reached in his thumb and he pulled out a plum. And he said, what a smart boy am I. You know, 
There are a lot of Christians, I shouldn't say that, a lot of church members just like that. They're pulling out a plum, and they say, my, God must want to pat me on the head for what I'm doing. My friend, that's the third question that they ask. Now the fourth one, and this is going the limit. Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Now, to these people, this was very meaningful because they were surrounded by pagan peoples that worshiped Moloch, worshiped Baal, and human sacrifice was offered. Many a person did that. And there are instances when Israel turned in this direction. In fact, two of the most godless kings that the southern kingdom had indulged in human sacrifice. That was old Ahaz and old Manasseh, two men probably as godless as they come. And these two men indulged in it. But is that what God would ask? Now, I want to be very careful right now because these people were never asked to offer a child at all as a human sacrifice. But God did require that they give the firstborn male of everything that was born into their family. It was true of a cow or of a sheep or an oxen or what have you. And it was true of the son. All right, then somebody says then that would mean a human sacrifice. It would not. God made it very clear to them. Now, there are many passages on this, and I'll have to confine myself to just two or three that I think that are ample to illustrate this. Over in the 18th chapter of the book of Numbers, God there is giving certain regulations. Actually, what he's doing here is he's confirming what he's already given and telling them what he required of them. Now, in Numbers 18, verse 15, "...everything that openeth the matrix in all flesh, which they bring unto the Lord, whether it be of man or beast, shall be thine." Now, God claimed the firstborn, you see. "...nevertheless..." Now, the nevertheless is very important here. "...nevertheless the firstborn of man..." shalt thou surely redeem. Now, God required that when a male child was born, belonged to God. But then redemption money, silver, was taken and paid for that firstborn. And also the firstlings of unclean beasts shalt thou redeem. In other words, God would not accept a human sacrifice, and he would not accept an unclean animal. That, I think, is quite interesting. Man's unclean. We have a habit today of dedicating our children to the Lord, and I think that that's a very fine thing to do. It's been my privilege to dedicate, I suppose, several thousand children in my day as a pastor. Well, some of them have turned out wonderfully well. I rejoice that um, mother introduced me to a young man back in a seminary. I was speaking at the school, and she was there, and she brought up her son. She says, Dr. McGee, you dedicated him when he was an infant. Well, 
I thank the Lord he's turned out well. But I have some that have been in some of our best jails, too. Now, the matter of dedication is nice to dedicate your child to the Lord. But that doesn't mean he's going to turn out well. God, in the Old Testament, said this, you are to redeem the child, put up redemption money for him. I will not take him now. Why? Well, he's like that unclean animal. He's unclean. That's the reason that a woman that had brought a child into the world was unclean. Why? She brought an unclean thing into the world. David said, in sin did my mother conceive me. And God doesn't want that child until he's redeemed, you see. So you're going to have to wait till that child can say, I accept Jesus Christ as my Savior. And then when you do that, then that child, God can take him and use him. But God won't take him and use him until then. That's the reason God required him, and God never would hear human sacrifice at all. And you have that mentioned so many times. I wonder if I may turn to another passage in Exodus, the 13th chapter, verse 2. "...sanctify unto me all the firstborn, whatsoever openeth the womb among the children of Israel, both of man and of beast." It is mine. And then I think probably I'll just turn to one other passage, and that's over in the 18th chapter of the book of Leviticus here, and it's in the 21st verse. And thou shalt not let any of thy seed pass through the fire to Molah. That is, you do not offer a human sacrifice. Don't take your child and offer him as a human sacrifice. Neither shalt thou profane the name of thy God. I'm the Lord. God said you'd profane me if you did that. Now, may I say this, that I have people that write in and say to me, I surely hope your little grandson is going to follow in your footsteps and become a preacher. And somebody else writes in and says, I know that that's what he's going to do, and I'm praying that he'll do that. May I say to you, and I do not mean to be cold-blooded and cold-hearted, but I don't pray that way about him at all. I don't pray about him. The best I could as a grandfather, I've lifted him to the Lord, and I've told the Lord that I want him saved first of all. And then I pray the Lord will use him in whatever his will is for him. Now, if his will is to be a pharmacist and to roll pills, that'll tickle me to death. If it is for him to dig a ditch, and that's the Lord's will for him, I'm going to be for that. May I say to you that you and I can't take a little child that's got our nature, a fallen nature, and attempt to dedicate that child to the Lord. It just simply won't work. That's not the way that it's done, if you please. Now, I hope that I've made that very clear, that these are things God does not require of you. When you come to him, how are you going to approach God? He's a holy God way up there, and I'm a sinner way down here. All right. Listen, verse 8. Oh, here is where the liberal, he has a picnic here. You just, well, spread the nice tablecloth down on the grass, friends. The liberal's going to have a picnic here. Listen to this. He hath shown thee, O man, what's good. 
And what doth the Lord require of thee? Number one, but to do justly, and to love mercy, and to walk humbly with thy God. Three things here. You're to be righteous, <laughs> justly in your dealings with your fellow man, honest and true. These are the things that he mentions here. Then the second thing is to love mercy, love. Love not only the mercy of God, but merciful in your own dealings with others. And then to walk humbly with thy God. Now, how are you going to do this, brother? Can you do this in your own flesh? Do you think that you can do it without God's help? Do you think that you can do it without God's salvation? If you do, I'm going to say something very strong now, but I'm far enough away from you, you can't hit me. You're a hypocrite. Don't tell me that you live by this moral code today without the power of God for the very simple reason these are the fruits of the Holy Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, and in it is righteousness, in it is mercy. All of these things can come and can only come in that way. Now, do you want to go to the New Testament and see what's said there concerning this? This is summing up the law, actually, the Mosaic law. Now, if you could do these in yourself, but will you listen to a man who lived in under it? And when he lived in under it, he told the truth. Will you listen to him here? In the 15th chapter of Acts, Simon Peter, when they were deciding whether the Gentiles would have to keep the law in order to be saved, that that would be part of the ritual, Simon Peter stood up and said, Acts 15:11, "...but we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ we shall be saved even as they." Now, why did he say that? Because he just said in verse 10, "...now therefore why tempt ye God to put a yoke upon the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear?" Simon Peter said, I lived under the law, and I don't think he ever got far away from it, even after he was saved, yet he said, we did not measure up to it. And God made it very clear that they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh. They that are after the Spirit, the things of the Spirit, but to be carnally minded is death, to be spiritually minded is life and peace, because the carnal mind is enmity against God. It's not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. So then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. But you're not in the flesh, since... You are in the Spirit, since the Spirit of God dwells in you. My friend, how does the Spirit of God dwell in you? You must be born again. The Lord Jesus said you must be born again. And you must be born again by receiving Christ. To as many as received Him, to them gave He the right, the power, the exousia on authority to become the sons of God, even to those that don't do any more than believe in his name. Mr. Liberal, I insist that you interpret this accurately. And when you do, you're not saved by your good works because you don't have any. Now, if you want to know what God takes delight in, 
and that which he requires of man, here it is. And the liberal, well, he just jumps up and down for joy at this. But he misses the point. And what doth the Lord require of thee but to do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with thy God? Now, these are the three things that God requires. Now, if you look at these three things, they are addressed, first of all, to man. O man, what is good? This means not only the man in Israel, but the man in the United States. Not only the person of the 7th century B.C., but the man of the 20th century A.D. This is for man. And this now is what God requires. These are the three things you're to do justly. That is, you must have a righteousness to present to God. You must be a righteous person. Then the second is, and love mercy. We have love here, and to love actually the mercy of God. The third is humility, and to walk humbly with thy God. Now, as we indicated last time, all three of these are the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. And none of us have any one of these things in our lives today. Now, Paul lists here the condition of man. He sets before us in the third chapter of Romans, beginning at verse 9, And going down through verse 18, he brings man before the judgment bar of God and shows he's guilty. Then he takes him into the clinic of God and shows that he's sick, sick nigh unto death. In fact, he's dead in trespasses and in sins. Now, no man, therefore, whoever is, can present these things to God. This is what God requires. Now, can you meet it? Paul says, there's none righteous, no, not one. Somebody says, well, that's in the New Testament. No, it's not, friend. All that Paul does in that section of Romans is quote the Old Testament. We find that back in the 14th Psalm, verse 1, the fool hath said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They've done abominable works. There is none that doeth good, none righteous. None that does good. Now, that's what God says about you. But God says he requires righteousness. How are you going to present it, my friend? Now, he goes on to say in verse 11 of chapter 3 of Romans, there is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. In other words, he says there's none that acts on even the knowledge that he has. And how many of you? Today, if you're not a Christian, do you really live up to your ideal? Have you attained the goal that you set? Have you come to the plateau of life where you're satisfied with your living? May I say to you that none of us even acts on the knowledge that we have, and there's none that seeketh after God. Now, somebody says, where is that found? Back in Psalm 14, verse 2. Let me read it. The Lord looketh down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there are any that did understand and seek God. There wasn't any. 
verse 3, they're all gone aside. They are altogether become filthy. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. That's Psalm 14:3. Now, I don't have time to do it, but from the Old Testament, I could multiply, friends, these statements again and again and again. Here's what God requires. But the Old Testament also makes it very obvious that you can't present this to God. You do not have this. Therefore, there must be a change in the life because there's none righteous. God requires righteousness. And we are told that Jesus was delivered for our offenses, raised for our justification. That word's righteousness. He's raised for our righteousness, that we might have righteousness. And then by the Spirit of God, we might produce righteousness in our lives. And then love of mercy. And none of us have that in our human heart. We're dead in trespasses and sins. Paul says that we've all gone out of the way. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. Now, this is the picture of man. This is the way that man is today. The point that is presented to us by Isaiah in Isaiah 53 is in verse 6, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. And evidently, us all have iniquity. Or he wouldn't have made a statement like that. So let's not be hypocritical. When we come to this verse and see that we're to walk humbly with our God, while we're told here that none seeketh after God, we want to come our way. Now, may I say this to you, and I say it in all kindness, and I trust that it might startle some of you and waken you out of your condition. If you believe that your church membership or your character or your good works today are going to get you to God, then may I say to you, you bypass God's way. The Lord Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh to the Father but by me. Now, if you can get to God by this route here, by presenting a righteousness, by loving mercy, and by walking humbly with God, if you can do that, and you do that on your own, then may I say to you that when you get to heaven, you can tell God to move over, that you want to share his throne with him, that you got there by yourself. You didn't need him. You're your own God. May I say to you, God says that he doesn't even share his glory with another, and I don't think he'll share his throne with you. My suggestion is, why don't you come God's way and not man's way? This is what God requires. But who are you kidding that you think you can present this in your natural state? My, how verses like this held up to the human family. And then they're commended for being polite folk and nice, especially on Sunday. And they seem so genteel and so lovely and yet have never come God's way. May I say to you, 
How can you live in a hypocrisy like that and continue on and on in that? Why not be honest with God? Just come right out with it. Go to him. Tell him that you're a sinner. He already knows it, but be nice if you told him it. It's better than climbing on a psychiatrist's couch and talking to him. Talk to God. Tell him the thing that's wrong with you. Tell him about your hang-ups. Tell him about the sin in your life. And God will save you. God will redeem you. Now, I've spent a long time here because this is a very important place in the Word of God. Now, I'm going to move on from here into something also that is very important. Now, having presented to these people what God requires, he's going to show them now how far they've fallen short of it. And this will be the reason that God will judge them, because of their willful and continual sinning, God's going to judge them. Now, will you listen to this? Verse 9, "...the Lord's voice crieth unto the city, and the man of wisdom shall see thy name. Hear ye the rod, and who hath appointed it?" Now, we've seen that Micah has been directing his prophecies largely to the urban areas, to the cities. His writing reveals that he actually is a very sophisticated writer, that he was in the know. He belonged to the upper echelon. Now, he is in contrast to Amos. Amos said, Why, I'm no prophet. Why, I'm just a gatherer of sycamore fruit. I'm a farmhand. I'm a country boy. I've just come to town. I'm wearing yellow shoes. But he happened to be God's man also. But Micah now is different. And you notice he is crying to the city. The Lord's voice crieth unto the city. And the man of wisdom shall see thy name, hear ye the rod, and who hath appointed it. Now, the rod is for judgment. We read back in the second psalm, He shall break them with a rod of iron, dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. The rod represents the judgment of God. Now, that judgment is coming upon this nation. And the man of wisdom, that is, the man in that day who believed God, who would listen, would recognize that judgment was coming upon the nation, and he would act accordingly, that the voice of God is lifted, and he speaks forth in judgment, and the man as a wise man who sees the dealings of God that will reveal his righteous character, as well as the fact that he is long-suffering, and he's patient, and he pardons iniquity, but also that he punishes. And that rod is the authority and the badge of that authority that he is the judge who will judge. Now, let's move on here because we see now here at verse 9 of chapter 6, "...the Lord's voice crieth unto the city, the man of wisdom shall see thy name." Hear ye the rod, and who hath appointed it? Are there yet the treasures of wickedness in the house of the wicked, and the scant measure that is abominable? In other words, there was still sin in the nation. And now he's going to reveal these sins specifically. 
He's going to spell them out, what they were. Now, verse 11, shall I count them pure with the wicked balances? Now, these people were coming, many of them, into the temple, bringing a sacrifice, going through the outward ceremony, and saying that they were doing justly and that they loved mercy. But what were they doing during the week? Well, God says, shall I count them pure with the wicked balance? I tell you, the butchers in that day were weighing their thumbs. Some butchers had thumbs worth several drachmas, let me tell you. And that was true. These men doing business were dishonest in their business dealings. And he says here, and with the bag of deceitful weights, they were absolutely crooked in their business dealings. They were avaricious. They were covetous. They were greedy. And yet they tried to pass off as religious folk. Now, verse 12, for the rich men are full of violence and the inhabitants have spoken lies and their tongue is deceitful in their mouth. Well, will you notice what is true here? They're guilty of violence, the rich were, and they're liars. They're deceitful. You can't believe them. Now, may I say to you, is this not a picture of our own nation? Is this not a picture of this wonderful land in which we live? You can't believe the news media. You can't believe the politicians. Doesn't make any difference what party. It's a day when it's difficult to believe businessmen. It's difficult today to believe those in the military, in the leadership. And actually, we're living in a nation today where most of us little folk are confused. We don't know who to believe. And this was the situation in that land, and God did not approve that. In fact, that is the thing that brought down the nation and brought down the judgment of God upon them. Now, I want to make this statement, and I want to make it very clear, because I love my country. I hate to see what's happening to it today. But I have taught for years that the United States would have to go down at the end of this age for the very simple reason that we are not in prophecy. And we're a world power today, but will we be tomorrow? And it seems that we are going down very fast. But let me say that at the time that I'm making this tape, things look very dark in this land of ours. We don't know who to believe. An energy crisis has come upon us and it didn't come suddenly. It didn't come in the past few months or the past few years. It's been coming for many years upon us. And many of us, I say many, a few of us, have been crying out that America is going to be judged. Well, we apparently at this stage where I'm speaking from right now, it looks like that we're moving into that orbit today. And many were warning 20 years ago, in fact, after World War II, that oil should have been brought out of the Middle East at that time and that we should never have used our own reserves. But you see, because of the greed, and it was called good business, of course, because it was making money and we went into an age of affluence and plenty, 
and we really left God out. And he's pretty much left out at this time. There's been no mention at the time that I'm making this tape that we need to turn to God in this emergency in which we find ourselves today. The thing I'm trying to say is this, that this nation, northern kingdom, was in the same condition that we are in today. And God said, I brought judgment upon this nation. And they were my chosen people as a nation. And I brought judgment upon them. You see, we have a philosophy of human government presented to us here. And now, listen to him. Therefore, also will I make thee sick in smiting thee, in making thee desolate because of thy sins. God says, I'm going to first start taking away the oil from you. And I'm not going to stop there. You're going to find out you're going to run short on many things before I'm through judging you. Verse 14, thou shall eat, but not be satisfied. That's verse 14. And thy casting down shall be in the midst of thee. And thou shalt take hope, but shall not deliver. And that which thou deliverest will I give up to the sword. God says that you're not going to be able to enjoy all of these things that you've enjoyed, these little goodies that you have had, and you have given no recognition to God at all. God says, I'll judge you. Now, he moves on. Verse 15, thou shalt sow, but thou shalt not reap. Thou shalt tread the olives, but thou shalt not anoint thyself with oil. And sweet wine, but shall not drink wine. God says that I intend to begin to cut you down, and I'll cut you down gradually. And that, of course, would give them an opportunity to turn to God. But we're going to find out that God would have pardoned them any time they would have turned to him. But my friend, you have to turn to him. God will judge sin, and he intends to judge sin. God emphasizes here that it's not really the externalities of religion that are important. They are certainly not essential to the worship of God. Although I believe in a ritual, I believe in a ritual in a church, but I believe that it is for believers and just not something to go through, not something that has any merit in and of itself, that it's the internality. It's what is on the inside. It's whether something has happened there. And then God makes it abundantly clear that man cannot meet his requirements in his own power and his own strength. And God, therefore, shows what man does naturally. And after these tremendous requirements that only can be met when we come to the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior. It's only in the power of the Spirit that these can be attained, that actually all of these are the fruits of the Spirit, and that if we are to walk humbly with God, it doesn't mean that we're going to rush into His presence with our character, our, our little good works, and say, Lord, look at me, how good I am. In fact, I can meet your requirements, so move over and let me sit down by the side of you. May I say, man can't do that. 
And God shows that these people had merited because after he gave that, what a contrast you have. God is going to judge this nation because of their sins. Instead of walking like this, they were going through the externalities of religion. But internally, they were far from God. And there was dishonesty in their business dealings. There was impurity in their lives. There was violence. And there was lying, there was deceit, there was every kind of a flagrant sin that was committed. And God cannot bless a people or a nation that engages in these things. And we attempted to make an application to our own nation where we have come and how far this nation is from God today. Now in verse 16 of this last chapter, chapter 6, I'm reading. For the statues of Omri are kept, and all the works of the house of Ahab. And ye walk in their counsels, that I should make thee a desolation, and your inhabitants a hissing. Therefore ye shall bear the reproach of my people. Now, the question would naturally be asked of an new reader of this, well, who in the world is Omri? And who in the world is Ahab? Never heard of them before, and why is he saying what he's saying about them? Now, this highlights the thing that I have mentioned several times, but in my ministry, I've never got around to it, and at this late date, I do not expect to get to it. But I pass it on to some younger man today as being a tremendous change in the study of the Bible that would be a great help in studying it. Now, I've suggested this several times before. Let me suggest it again, that along with the historical books, the prophetic books that fit in during the reign of a certain king should be studied. And that would mean that Micah should be studied along during the reign of Hezekiah in the southern kingdom and of Ahab and Jezebel in the northern kingdom, that if the historical books were considered and then the prophetic, one would compensate the other and they would present a whole. In other words, they would give you the complete picture. And I had hoped to be able to do that when I was head of the English Bible department at the Bible Institute, there was a question at that time whether I would continue teaching or continue as pastor of the church of the open door, but I made the decision to stick with the church, so I never got around to making the change that I wanted to make. And I found out that the head of the English Bible Department at Moody Bible Institute was thinking the same way. So when I was back there for a Founders Day program that they had, why, I talked with Dr. Max Coder at that time about that and told him what I had in mind, and he said, well, he'd been thinking along the same line. And I don't believe that he and his busy schedule was able to make any progress in that direction. So we've left this for some young man to take the historical books and the historical portions and fit them right in with the prophetic books or, as it were, thread in the prophetic books where they belong 
in the historical record. And here is a place where we need a little light. So I'm having to take the liberty today to go back to the historical book of 1 Kings, and I go to the 16th chapter, and I can't read too much there. But we find out that this man Omri that is mentioned here, he was one of the kings in the northern kingdom and one of the meanest. In fact, he and Zimri both reigned, and they were rival kings. Then Tibni, he didn't make it. He died. And then Omri, who prevailed, he ruled over the entire northern kingdom. Now, Omri did something, and I'm going to just drop in at chapter 16 of 1 Kings, read verse 24. And he bought the hill Samaria of Shemer for two talents of silver and built on the hill and called the name of the city which he built after the name of Shemer, owner of the hill Samaria. And it was called that, it's called that to this day. And the ruins of the city that Amri built up there is still there, by the way. But he's not really the one who developed it. Because after the death of Amri, there came to the throne Ahab. And he was the son of Amri. Now, Ahab, if the name Jezebel had been mentioned here, then we'd understand who we're talking about. Because Ahab married Jezebel. And if you want to know who she is, we'll find out here. And I'm going to drop down now into this chapter, verse 28. So Amri slept with his fathers, was buried in Samaria, and Ahab his son reigned in his stead. Now, verse 30, Ahab the son of Amri did evil in the sight of the Lord above all that were before him. Now, that was going some, let me tell you. One of the reasons that he had a great little helper on the part of his wife Jezebel, verse 31, it came to pass as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, that he took to wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians. And that's the city of Sidon, the Phoenician city. And they worshiped Baal. And he went and served Baal and worshipped him. And he reared up an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he had built in Samaria. This is the man that we're dealing with. Now, it's this one that Micah is talking about. He says the trouble actually began with the leadership, for the statues of Amri are kept. That is, they follow him and all the works of the house of Ahab. And you can see that that plunged the entire nation into idolatry. And ye walk in their counsels that I should make thee a desolation and your inhabitants a hissing. Therefore, ye shall bear the reproach of my people. Now, you see, Ahab and Amri had reigned a long time before Micah came along. They had preceded him somewhat. And so we've come to a period now where you see the effect and the influence of evil in the kingdom. And we have that same thing today. The leadership of any nation 
if that nation is to prosper under God, should be godly. I think one of the things that could be said about Queen Victoria was, they like to criticize that Victorian era and all that sort of thing. Even the English today like to ridicule it. But that happened to be the greatest period in their history. That is when they had an empire. And Victoria, she was empress of India. She was really a ruler. And Great Britain is really cut down to size today. And the leadership has not been in the past as it should have been. And that's one reason that when this little Princess Anne married, I rejoiced in watching the ceremony. My wife and I looked at that, and as we did, tears came into our eyes. We were over at Phoenix at the time in the motel, and we looked at the replay of it. And there was a restoration of the sacredness of marriage. And I'm sure because it came from those at the top that it will have an influence. And this country has not had a very good example set from Washington, either by the White House or the Congress, in a long, long time. In fact, in my entire lifetime, and I put it much span this century, may I say to you, the example there hasn't been good, emanating from Washington. And as a result, gross immorality has spread throughout this nation today. And I do believe because of this verse here that God would say that I would hold responsible the leaders of the nation down through this century that plunge the country into gross immorality, for the example was set there. You see, this is a philosophy of government. It's God's philosophy of government. Now, they don't teach this today in any of our universities. That's part of our problem also. We're not really getting the facts today. And as a result, our nation continues to decay and deteriorate and will continue to do so unless a great revival should come to our land. And there's certainly no evidence of it at the present moment.